Live from Mecca Mormon in Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to walk toward his love. And I'm your host, Sean McCraney. And uh, had one of the most important shows I think we've ever done air last night. And uh, I hope you'll check it out. It's called uh, Lawyers or Lovers. And just look for the graphic there on the YouTube channel or on our site. But let's review it with your comments and uh, open up the phone lines right after we have a word of prayer. Lord, we uh, come to you. We thank you. Uh, collectively, uh, unite our hearts in faith. And we, just as believers, we gather and we pray and I get to be the mouthpiece. And we uh, invite you into our uh, minds and hearts and help ask you to help us uh, know what you're telling us to do and be and how to walk. Bless, bless um, Seth and Wendy and Mary and Mags and audience here and audience at home, archive audience. We'll be sons and daughters, be true and um, live in love. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, prayer uh, can seem kind of perfunctory. I know I, when I pray, I kind of sometimes sound it's like it's perfunctory, like I'm just sort of getting it uh, over or just saying it. It's not for me. That's just how I kind of talk. Uh, but especially public prayer. When you're asked to give a public prayer, it can seem like it's a formality to get out of the way. Some of you know that I was advised years ago by the, these advisors at this church that supported us uh, out of Southern California in the early years of doing the ministry uh, their pastors got together and they say, you know, we don't think you should pray on your show. And their reason was we're going to lose audience members because they're not going to like a prayer. But if you jump right into it, you can hook them. And uh, I said, too bad. We're, we're praying. I'm going to pray. And, uh, and we have tried to include God in prayer in every production that we do. I've forgotten a couple times. But in my estimation, there's no more important participant in anything that's happening between believers than God. He's the guy that you want, the guy. He's the one you want to be included in your community and your discussion. You want God there, right? And uh, he's the supreme special guest. And so with him there, you, to me at least, I want to welcome him in. And uh, I want to thank him for all he does and ask him to lead us together. We're in this as, a, as brothers and sisters together, thinking and talking in our minds. And as I kind of voice this stuff and you guys send comments, and we want him there. And we invite him there by, by, by prayer. Now, you don't have to. I trust that God's there. But it's, it's kind of like you probably don't have to recognize your great-grandfather in an audience. But if your great-grandfather's there, it's nice to do it. I don't know what I'm saying, but it just feels right to me to pray. So uh, they serve as a time when we can all unite together in our hearts and minds and talk to God. And I just think it's really important, and that's why we do it. So let's get right to the topic tonight. We're going to open up our phone lines, uh, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. If you'd like to call by the time I'm done reading the comments, if we don't have calls, we will cut it off and go to next Monday when we have another presentation. Last Tuesday night, we had a show where I followed up on the previous Monday. Every Tuesday night's our follow-up show. And uh, I talked about unconditional agape love for everyone all the time. And I said that we ought to work on loving individuals face-to-face before we join mass movements and go out into the public and try to cause reform and, uh, and, and consider that the loving thing. That one-on-one love, agape love, 
goes a long, long way in this world because others sense it, feel it, and they're able to understand it and begin to walk and uh, buy it. So we got some great responses from that show, and I want to share a couple of them with you. Rex Albright said, how can one love doctors who perform abortions? Really? We could definitely pray for their souls and pray they repent of and stop performing abortions. Is that a form of love? So uh, I think, first of all, it's a great question. It's right into what is this life about as Christians? How are we supposed to love someone who's performing abortions? Come on, he's, he says, really, with a question mark. Really? I don't know if it's really or really? So I think praying for those who perform abortions is a form of love by all means. You are sacrificing some of your time in your communications with God on their behalf. That's a sacrifice That's a, uh, of your lips in prayer for a person's well-being. So, of course, that's, that's a form of agape love. But my point, Rex, is that it's the face-to-face while people are still sinners, while they are still sinners, that causes a sinner to turn from their life when they experience unconditional love from us. Uh, it's not distant love nearly as much. The fact that you're praying for an abortion doctor, but you can't love him in the day-to-day, is, is I'm, not, I'm not so sure, certain about the effectiveness of that. So that's why I said before we go out and amass and petition and protest abortion clinics, why don't we learn to love the abortionists and the nurses who are performing abortions and the people who are having abortions. And when you can learn to love them and you've got that down, maybe we won't even have a need for the protests any longer. Uh, Others have seen, they have to see that they are unconditionally blessed and loved by Christians for them to want to have what we have. And you can't give them that unless it's face-to-face, unless you take time to engage with somebody one-on-one. It doesn't just happen from a distance is what I'm trying to say, which does give us a real good reason to be active in a, in a, a local church because it does give people who are young in the faith or not of the faith to experience agape love if they get that in their church. But the problem is often they go to a church, they get it as long as they are, you know, considering Christianity, but once they embrace it, then it's conform or be cast out time. So I'm not so sure that in the institutions, people really get the uh, truest form of agape love presented to them. So uh, agape love is always sacrificial, always, and it's always self-denying. And it's always putting the other God ahead of our own wishes. When you choose to set aside the acts of an abortionist, when you choose to sit down with a, a person, male or female, who does abortions uh, you know, 12 hours a day, hundreds of them a month, let's say, and it's personally repulsive to you, but you move in and you love the abortionists, not because you choose, not because you love them, but because God tells you to love them and you sacrifice your will for God's, 
they have the opportunity to receive you and your love, which in turn, when offered without conditions, without attachments, without, I'll love you when you're done committing abortions, but I love you as you are right now. Well, aren't you a Christian? Yes, I am. Do you agree with me doing abortions? No, I don't like abortions. Well, why are you so loving to me? Because I am supposed to love you, and I do, unconditionally and as you are. That softens the human heart. So that's why the mass appeal out in the, in the, in the face of uh, petitions and, and all that stuff is a far lesser form of Christianity than the one-on-one with individuals. The way you and I are able to look at others who do things that are reprehensible to us is to realize, and this is really important, Rex, that we, you, me, everyone who claims Christ, every pastor, are also doing things that are reprehensible. Um, If not with our hands, then with our hearts. We might hate a certain person. We might get unrighteously jealous of them, envious of them. Um, We may judge them. We may lust. We may act selfishly. With that mindset in hand that you are just as egregious in the eyes of God as someone who's performing abortions, uh, then you'll say, who am I to judge another person? And with that attitude, you're well on your way to being able to love others and to be free. And that's really important, no matter how fugly their sins are. So I used to think that I was above committing some sins. I really did. I used to think, Nah, I would never do that. That guy, I could never do that. And have you ever felt that way? But uh, I thought I could be noble in every case. And I'm now convinced that I'm probably capable of doing or performing probably almost any sin. Given the right circumstances, background, situation, I don't know. I, I don't put anything past myself anymore. And there's some things I say in my heart I'd never do, but I don't know. And I think the phrase uttered by Jean-Paul Sartre, which is one of my favorites, uh, goes a long way for believers, even though he was an atheist. And he said, I've never met a man more evil than myself. And if you can walk in those shoes and believe that there's, you, you are just, you're, ne- you're more evil than anybody you've met, it's a, it's a humbling position when you meet others uh, who are having uh, trouble in their lives with certain things. So, and I want to explain one more thing for whatever it's worth. Agape love is the end of the law and the prophets. Agape love is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Why? I have said that God is love, and so agape love is what he wants his children to operate by, right? I've been pushing that forever and ever, right? And so you guys are probably getting really sick of it, and we're wrapping the year up with this theme of agape love. But why does God want us to love? Why is Jesus' commandment for us to love? What's the purpose? Is it just so that we love, so that God is love and we love, so we're like God? Is that it? Is it just that? I want you to think about that. Think about this. God gave us his law. It was perfect. Human beings could not abide by it. Okay? So as a result, God gave us his son. And his son came and he did everything that the law demanded. And so we human beings are to look on his son in faith and live. Not by obedience to the law. None of us could abide by it, but we look to his son and live. And 
we place our faith in his son and his son says love so we love okay and then we come with the big question why why and i want to tell you why it's because it's only through agape love that a human being can truly be free it's only through agape love that a human being can truly be free anything short of it you will be in bondage as a human being to something someone some memory some event that you have not let go of but if you live by agape love and what the spirit tells you to do forgive be patient long-suffering a kind merciful all the things if you have that toward anybody and anything in this world you will truly be free why because you can't get trapped in your head in that other world that's existing out there somebody beats you up okay they harm you jesus said love them that persecute you Go, be long-suffering, be forgiving, be patient. You are toward that person who beat you up without a right or reason. You will be free from that person, what they did to you, and you'll be able to walk in peace. If you can't approach that person who beat you up with agape love, you will be a prisoner to revenge, to hate, to anger, to uh, injustice, whatever. And that is just one little example of of how agape love frees the individual who employs it in their life. You had a bad mom and dad. Forgive mom and dad. You had someone steal your paycheck. Forgive. Move on. You're free. You're free. You're free. Whenever you apply agape love, you're liberating yourself. And this is why God wants it, because he wants us to be free. He wants us, his children, not to be trapped and in bondage. That's why he sent his son to open up the prison doors to them that are bound. So when you think that, you know, people say the, the, the thing that revenge hurts the most is the person who carries it. It's true. So, so Jesus says, forgive and you'll be liberated from whatever it is. So every time you do that, it works. God allows us. I'm not sure I'm going to read that because I'm not sure I believe this. Yeah, I don't believe that. <laughs> what kind of state was I in when I wrote this? <laughs> not reading it. All right, anyway, that was what I wanted to say in response to Rex's comment. Can you really love an abortionist? Uh, you know, it's not can you. It's you're supposed to and you should. And if that includes praying for them, uh, that's how the Spirit leads you, pray for them. But it means, man, you've got to give them that love that the Spirit moves us to give everybody because that will change them and it will protect you from being put in bondage. You want to hate, you want to grow in bitterness and, and, and hatred? You just let someone like that get under your skin. You just let it boil up long enough, man, and you'll be cursing the day you were born. You'll be filled with rage. And you never know, you could go postal or do something like that because it just gets to be too much. 
This is why God gives these wonderful directions. All right, we had a few other comments from last night, that uh, show uh, a week ago. Uh, Contact 64, thank you, Sean. Watching has been a pleasure. You're a brother in Christ. These shows have been amazing. Thanks for your love and your faithfulness. That's from Moira in England. Shamoa Krasinski. Krasinski, I'm sorry, man. There's more than one way to interpret the phrase that about the road to hell being paved with good intentions. However, it is definitely a saying from men, not from God, even if sometimes it makes sense when spoken in the right context. But on the subject of loving intentions, being or not being love, when the actions thereof inadvertently cause harm, I am reminded of how God designated cities of refuge for the Israelites. Only God can accurately judge one's true motivation. And from what I've read and heard about God's judgment, he definitely takes the intention of a person's act into the account. He might punish foolishness and ignorance too. But I am led to believe that God takes an individual's intention into account when deciding what they have done. I can't help but agree completely. And so I believe loving intent is indeed truly love. But also that well-informed actions combined with loving intent, are superior to careless and ill-informed actions with loving intent. By the way, Shamoa is actually a man, but I don't blame you for assuming otherwise. I have actual, actually met a couple of women with a very familiar name, Shanoa. Uh, okay, and you know what? The question is, is our intentions equal to agape love? I don't think so, uh, and I disagree with you if that is what you mean by that. And uh, be, I think intentions are important, but intentions don't have anything to do, in my estimation, of agape love because agape love is doing what God has told you to do. And, and so your intentions, right or wrong, are irrelevant, I think. I think that doing it, sacrificing that your own will and doing it is the important point. But motivations are important. So that goes back to the conversation we had last week. Uh, and then from last night's show on lawyers or lovers. Uh, and again, if you haven't seen that show, I, I really challenge you to watch it beginning to end. I don't think it's that long, maybe 40 minutes, but I think it's really uh, an important show to watch if you're trying to understand the difference between the law and love. Mm. So before I go on and read the comments from uh, the show last night, we have an on-air sh- uh, comment. You think abortion is wrong because your belief system says it is wrong, and your belief system is based on what you believe God says is right and wrong. Well, I think that's probably true. I, I, I don't believe uh, abortion is wrong I, because abortions are done, and I don't think that they are wrong. Abortions, some, are done, and I don't think that they are wrong. But I do think that um, when you have a choice to save a life or take a life, that I think that holding to saving a life is always going to be or usually going to be more beneficial for all people involved. But you know what? This is a sticky wicket. I am not for mandating someone to or not to do anything. I think I am a big believer in freedom of choice. And I'm going to love someone who's had an abortion or someone who hasn't had an abortion equally. But it's a tough one. And, and I think if, if men could have abortions, I think we'd make abortion a sacrament. But it's women who have them. And so we all have our opinions and, and everything else. It's a sticky wicket. All I want to say relative to the subject is I believe in loving the person no matter what they do. 
I don't care what they do. Whatever they do, I, they're going to have my unconditional acceptance and love. They could have a thousand abortions in their life. I'm going to love them because I believe that is what is um, asked of me by the God that we're talking about there. Okay. Deanne Hansen says, we all become what he said not to be hypocrites. That's by the law. And I can't uh, agree with you more, Deanne. She said, enjoyed the show. Ex-Mormon for Jesus says, history demonstrates that you're correct, Sean, regarding how the letter of the law kills. Church history is loaded with trials. People like Bloody Mary, Puritan executions, Martin Luther's anti-Semitic work called the Jews and their lies, which discourages, which encourages destroying their synagogues, and so on. It's true. Luther was anti-Semitic in many ways. These are the roots of modern denominations. As far as I'm concerned, if the roots are bad, the fruits are bad. I agree with you. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Look at the strife and divisions, the man-made religions and denominations caused by the letter today. The fruits of their own roots. I pray that we all see through the strife and doctrinal battles and debates of today and actually become one with Christ. Could not agree with that one more. Thank you, ex-Mormon for Christ. Sarah Leanne Young, uh, our faithful sister, she wrote, absolutely love the episode tonight. If we look at our relationship with God, kind of like we do with all of our other relationships, The idea that we must obey a book of rules and laws in order to be right with him just seems ridiculous to me. God is love, grace, mercy, and forgives us unconditionally. The idea that we must be lawyers or law obeyers in order to be accepted by him seems so opposed to who he is. It would be like compiling a book of rules for your husband or wife, for your children, or for your friends. It's unnecessary. When you love and respect someone, you don't need a list of rules to tell them how to love and respect them. The Word teaches us about God and guides us in our walk, but to use it as a rule book for a proper relationship with God just seems unreasonable to me. And if applied to any other relationship that people have in their lives, it's controlling and abusive. Hats off, my sister. I I can't agree with you more. And, and it's a really great point. I don't need a book to tell me how to love my wife, my children, or my neighbors. I don't need that book. I love them, if I love them. I love them, and I don't need a book to tell me what I can and can't do. Because I'm going to do what's for their best interest. And that's, point, that's the point that you made in that, and I love it. Off air, J7T8 says, Peter was a bit made at Paul, a bit mad. Um, Well, the person who's writing these, please spell check. Oh, Peter was a bit mad at Paul for sitting down and making fried with those dirty heathen Gentiles. Making fried. Those polytheists who didn't know the truth. Conversation or violence. Paul was really cool. Our, Our fan base... They all work for uh, Daniel Webster, I think. I, I'd have no idea what making fried means. <laughs> I'm just teasing you, whoever you are, but it's a good comment. Uh, listen, Steve Forbush says, love your haircut. Taking it all the way back to the lifeguard days. Yes, indeed. And then Stephanie Smith said, uh, of the show understood. Thanks for being a bright light. 
Uh, thank God for this ministry. MH said, on the sola scriptura part, I'm not arguing for or against the idea of sola scriptura, whatever people mean by that, but my take was always that back before the Protestants, the Catholic Church would not let anyone else have copies of the Bible in their possession, translated, etc., and with their ties to the government made those things punishable crimes. If you violated their interpretation and you were commanded to hell by excommunication. So I thought by what they meant by saying sola scriptura was to say that they wanted to look to the Bible alone and that the Catholic Church shouldn't have sole control over it, make it legal to make a copy of it or read it for yourself. That any extra religious rules put on them by the Catholic Church of that time by going to hell or by excommunication for not following the said rules was not acceptable to them. That's my understanding. I guess more dogmatic type people today mean more by sola scriptura. Personally, I likely wouldn't even argue with people about it if it came up myself anyways. But I do wonder now if my understanding of history on that is also correct. If so, if you think people today who might be adamant about Sola Scriptura are using that term in the same context and with the same reasoning motivations behind it. So, MH, the, the, I think some of your points are correct with Sola Scriptura relative to the Catholic Church. They were saying, yeah, we don't need to listen to you. We are the priesthood. We are our own priests. We don't need your priests and your interpreters. And we will let the Bible tell us uh, what uh, the Bible means. And you don't get to have control over it anymore. We have the Guggenheim. Is it the Guggenheim? That's a, uh, that's a uh, museum in New York. Who's the first printing press? Gutenberg. <laughs> the Guggenheim. The Guggenberg. We have the Guggenberg putting out Bibles now, baby. So you guys don't have the power. So in some ways, you're right about that interpretation. But when uh, Calvin and Luther and a lot of the other fathers of the Reformation started pushing on Sola Scriptura, it meant, listen, this is the law. And like we said last week, when you have the law, you have letters. And when you have letters, you have lawyers. And when you have lawyers, you have legalism. And when you have legalisms, you have a death to love. And that's why I gave you all those passages where Paul said, it's not the letter, the letter killeth. That the new, what we call the New Testament today is not the New Testament. God tells us what the New Testament is. He says, this is my New Testament in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. This is my New Testament. I'll write my laws on their hearts and on their minds. That's the New Testament. Men called that gathering of books 280 years after uh, Jesus died, the New Testament letters and we have become lawyers and we have killed the spirit and we have ceased loving over it that's why we have so many denominations so sola scriptura to the reformers meant uh the bible tells us exactly everything we need to live by as christians and what did it cause that's why erasmus said to martin luther yeah sola scriptura sola scriptura it is the bible alone as long as we agree with martin luther's def interpretation of it you see, and that's the problem with Sola Scriptura. Everyone reads it and sees something differently. So the letter never works. It never works. And, and that's why I used that example last night. Put up one single law and you will find a division, fractions, fighting, and I don't care what the law is. No cheese puffs in campus ever. And I guarantee you, Mark Pazant will show up eating cheese puffs. 
and Patrick will fight with Mark over his breaking the rule. I'm just using it as a funny example because those two guys are here tonight. But that's what happens with people and written rules. But if we go by the spirit where God writes on our hearts and we never mention Cheetos, then Mark can sit there and he can eat them and Patrick can sit there and he can say nothing and we're all fat, dumb and happy, right? So that's on that. Cheryl Dyer Dyer said, excellent information and makes so much sense the way it was explained. My question is a bit off topic. I've just been wondering about this for some time. Since Jesus said, when there's two or three gathered in my name, I will be there. Does this mean that if you are alone, that Jesus is not with you, being only, there's only one of you? Uh, I think when he says, when two or three are gathered in my name, I will be with you. He's just making a comment. Whenever you gather together as a group, as a body, as a, com- as not a communion, as a um, ecclesia called out, I'll be there. It's not to say, if there's only one of you, I won't be there. It's just to reassure that in the gathering in his name, he will be present. I hope that helps because he told his apostles he'd always be with them. And he's always with us by the spirit that dwells inside. We don't have any calls. No off-air questions that are spelled properly. It's a no and no. And so we're going to wrap it up early. Next week is Chris Mass. We're going to have a little talk about that holiday on Monday night. Write your comments below. Let us know what your thoughts are about it. And then Tuesday night, we'll cover what you have to say. That's Christmas Eve, but we're going to have my family here, uh, my daughters and maybe some husbands and grandkids sitting up on stage. And we're going to talk to you about a couple things before we uh, wrap it up for that night. If you want to tune in here on Heart of the Matter.